I want you to imagine the scene with me. The breeze is blowing gently through this small, quaint church in the jungles of Panama. The sun is just beginning to set. The church feels calm, silent, like it often does after a really great prayer meeting. And missionary Jacob Loven is sitting there with the young leaders of this equally young church. And he's beginning to talk to them about their experience of becoming a Christian and what they most like about this new life of following Jesus. The answers were very much what you would expect from a new Christian. Some people said it was the peace that it brought to the people who were traditionally at war with one another. Others said that it was the worship and the fellowship and the church services that they enjoyed, but there was a check in this missionary's heart that said, I, I think this is surface stuff. I, I want to push a little bit further. And so he did. And finally, they admitted what they most appreciated about this new faith and what they said was shocking to this missionary. They said it was the new power words, the new power words that Christianity had brought them. This was strange because Loven did not recall that as part of one of the discipleship courses that he had taught in this church at this particular point. So he goes, what, what do you mean, new power words? Well, the man said, when you want to harm your enemy, you go to church. You sit right in front of him in the prayer meeting so that when you turn around to kneel in your seat and pray, he's right there in front of you. And then quickly you say, redemption, salvation, and amen. And when you open your eyes, if the man is still there, the person is still there, you have cursed them, and they're going to get sick. Jacob was shocked. He was surprised. He, th this was not part of the curriculum that he had taught, but somewhere along the way, the message of the gospel that these people sincerely and wholeheartedly had embraced got garbled in the minds of these new young believers. See, what they had done is they had reinterpreted Christianity as a new and more powerful form of magic that enabled them to gain success and even harm their enemies through the right magic words and the right formulas. See, the only way I can think about it is like, like what Dr. Frankenstein did with that crazy beast. He, he, they had stitched together parts of the truth of the gospel and the paganism of their former life together. And that's this, this, this stitching together of this new religious beast was irrespective of the massive contradiction that was now their lives. That parts of ideas and practices that did not belong in the same worldview had now been meshed together. But I mean, to be honest with you, these, these things are easy to see. They're easy to see because we are not this tribe in Panama. We are in our comfortable Western lives. And it's easy to point fingers at them and be like, how do you not get this? But this story does reveal an uncomfortable reality that makes me feel, to be honest, a little uneasy. 
it reveals that it is possible to claim to worship Jesus while still serving the gods of our culture at the very same time and not even know it. This begs an uncomfortable question to all of us. Besides Jesus, who else are we serving? My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Well, hey, everybody, again, thank you so much for listening. I'm very, very honored that you would give me time in your day like this, and I don't take it for granted. And I do want to give an invitation to all of you that are in Ontario. You're listening to this, and you're in Ontario, Canada. On the weekend of May 17th to the 19th, 2019, I want to invite you to all come out to the Embassy Church, where the Ontario Youth Convention is going to be going on. The Ontario District of the United Pentecostal Church is putting on our big holiday weekend youth convention at the Embassy Church, and we thank them for opening up their doors to to us to allow us to come. And that's going to be held in Oshawa, Ontario. And you can Google the church. It's right on Taunton Road. It's a great, great, big, massive church. And uh, evangelist Chris Green, Pastor Dan McLeod are going to be uh, our speakers for that weekend. It's going to be power-packed. And I'm going to be speaking at the 1.30 p.m. service on Sunday, May 19th. That's this weekend. And so I'd love to uh, I'd love to extend an invitation to you for you to come on out and uh, and hear me speak. And I'd love to get the opportunity to meet you if you've been listening to the podcast and, and get to say hi. Also, shout out to our listeners in Sweden. If you're into this podcast and you're from Sweden and you are enjoying the content and you want to have more conversations about faith and the Bible and how we can become more um, like Jesus and the principles of Jesus can be in our life, you need to do me a huge favor and check out two churches there. And pardon my pronunciation here, but these two churches, one's in Stockholm, one's in Falun, and it's uh, Forsham Lingen Klippon and Forsham Lingen Klippon Falun. And you can um, visit their website, forshamlingenklippon.se. And um, Pastor Kelly and Pastor Craig Christofferson are there, and they'd love to have the opportunity to meet you and uh, talk to you about more of these ideas about Jesus. And all, thank you for listening to all of you from all over the world. We've got listeners in the UK and Brazil, uh, across Europe, as well as uh, Canada and the United States. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited today because we're continuing a conversation that we began in our last podcast about the early book of Acts Church and how they were so different from the rest of the religious world and how if we want to be different from the religions and the ideas that are our, in our day and we want to be truly apostolic, that is like the apostles, we need to become more like them. And one of the things we talked about that made the early church stand out was the radical monotheism. But it wasn't just radical monotheism. It was incredible cultural diversity tied with radical monotheism. And while the Roman world was used to Jews being extremely monotheistic, they, they wrote that off as a cultural, you know, cultural peculiarity. That was just something strange, you know, that culture did. But, but when the Holy Spirit broke out in Acts 2 and people began to be filled with what they claimed was the same power that resurrected the crucified body of Jesus Christ from the dead and 
and they would have this powerful supernatural experience all throughout Acts where there would be this visible sign, this initial evidence of speaking in other tongues or a language that they did not know uh, previously to this experience, a language, words that they did not understand. When this supernatural experience was going on, it was going on amongst a large swath of different cultures and different ethnicities all across economic economic statuses. And what was happening was as these pagans were turning to Jesus, they were simultaneously walking away from their other gods. And you just didn't do that in the culture. But here are these Christians. They're from every nation, every language, every economic class. And they're worshiping Jesus, not just as a God, but as the only God. And they were insisting that everyone else should do the same. And to make matters worse, they had this gall, this audacity, this arrogance to call the pagan gods of Rome idols. Now, quick history lesson before we jump into the heavy stuff today about, you know, what could be the things that we believe that are tied to our culture. I want to give you a quick history lesson about this word idols. And it's really quite fascinating because nowhere else in the ancient Roman world or Greek world did anybody call the gods of Rome or the gods of any nation or any family or any region or any profession an idol. You just didn't do that. It was so radically offensive that many in the Roman Empire called these new Jesus followers atheists. It seems crazy. But by virtue of branding the other gods as idols, they were in essence denying their existence. I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul celebrated the conversion and passion of the new Christians in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned from God to idols to serve the true and living God. Now, I want you to notice this really sharp, really stark language here. One true living God, the idols. You turn from the idols to serve the one true and living God. Now, we read through this statement. We're like, yeah, okay, cool. But to this, the, the, the world that, that this was written in, they're like, hold up. You think Roma is an idol? You think, you think Jupiter is an idol? You think the patron saint of all bricklayers is an idol? The, the unmitigated gall, right? And this sounds strange to us because when we hear the word idol, what do we think of? We think of statue. and I mean, that's what it was, right? I mean, it was a statue. They had a statue in their house. And so, yeah, that's what an idol, uh, an idol was. But, but it wasn't that way to that culture. This word was an insult. And nowhere else in uh, but the Bible... Nowhere else in the Roman world are gods called idols. And so what does that word mean? Again, history lesson. Hang with me. Hang with me because we're, we're, we're going somewhere that's going to be very, very practical and relevant to our everyday life. The, the word idol used in Scripture is this Greek word eidolon. And it is used to describe shades of the departed, apparitions, phantoms of the mind. Primarily, that's at least what one dictionary told me, Vine's Expository Dictionary of the Bible, is that it was primarily a phantom. The word idol in ordinary Greek language was used to describe or to indicate or to identify something that was an illusion of the mind. 
That's what they meant by phantom. It was an illusion of the mind. So I want you to imagine like um, there's this little boy. He's um, he's he's asleep in his bed and he has a bad dream. And now he imagines there are monsters under his bed. So he cries, you know, mommy, mommy, come, come help me. There's monsters in my bed. Come rescue me from the monsters in my closet. And his mom busts in because she hears him crying, wondering if he's, if he's okay, figures out it's the monsters he had in his dream. And she goes, oh, you believe there's monsters under the bed. Oh, Timmy, that's just Eidolon. That's just make-believe. That's just, that's just an idol. That's just, that's just a phantom in your mind. Now you can see if that's how this word was used, and all of a sudden now the church, this radical, monotheistic, Jesus alone is God, but incredibly diverse group of people is now poking at the ideas and values and gods of every region, every nationality, every tribe, and Rome itself, how this was super insulting. And Dr. Larry Hurtado says, this insulting use of the Greek word eidolon to designate deities is not found in ancient pagan usage, but is all over the Bible. And the Bible calls the gods of this world phantoms and calls the worship people give to these phantoms as idolatry, a pointless, nihilistic, purposeless, and even sinful practice. Uh, look at what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. So what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god. There's only one god. Notice the sarcasm in the language. Paul is saying in a world full of ideas in a world telling you that all religions are essentially true and that are worthy of all equal worship, he was like, they're idols. There's only one God, and that's Jesus. I want to echo that same belief. I don't say this to disrespect any person who is looking for something more, seeking to transcend the temporary and the shallow. I'm not looking to offend any sincere individual desiring for spirituality and transcendent purpose and meaning beyond life. But out of love for everyone, I declare that there's only one God. And because there's only one God, and Jesus alone is God, all others are idols. So do not worship idols. And I know what the large majority of this, the, the listenership to this podcast, you're, you're, you're followers of Jesus. You're like, dude, we know. We got this. I didn't burn incense to anybody today. But remember, like the early followers of Jesus in the book of Acts, this is difficult to live because idols are everywhere. And it's even harder for us because our modern gods don't have like don't have names like being names or people names like they're they're not Jupiter, they're not Roma. They've they've got other titles to them. And because we're not maybe be you know going to the mosque to have prayers and worship Allah and then go to church and worship Jesus, we feel that idolatry doesn't exist in our life. Remember, idolatry is not a belief system. 
especially to the world of Jesus. Idolatry doesn't have to be embracing another theology. Idolatry is worship. And if if you remember last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, worship is rituals performed or organizing your life around certain behaviors that keep bad stuff from happening, that bring good stuff into your life, and that ground your life, give it meaning, and make you feel connected to a broader group of people and make you a good person in your society. It's the stuff that through emotional investment and time and money that you do that makes you happy and makes you feel protected and makes you feel like you belong. And you're right. You're right. We, we, don't, we don't have Jupiter. We, we don't have Roma. But we got Instagram. You're like, that's not an idol. Well, if when you post a picture online and you get no likes, it jacks up your whole day, that may be an idol. If your whole emotional world revolves around the affirmations you get from people on the internet that you don't even really know, and your sense of purpose and destiny and connection comes from a virtual world, there there could be a chance that in between the God that you proclaim is true and your heart is your phone. Some people worship money and things. That can be an idol. Remember, this, this is not a belief system. It's, it's habits. It's practices. Money and things can become an idol. Uh, the Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 and then 15 and 16, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless uh, it is to think that wealth brings true happiness. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this, too, is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. And I've listened to people jump through all sorts of theological hoops with the book of Ecclesiastes. And they're like, oh, you know, it's, it's Solomon, he's backslidden, you know, and and we make Solomon out, you know, you know, to be this backslidden pagan emo guy. He's like, you know, an early 2000s emo teenager up into his, you know, up in his room, like everything is meaningless. My life stinks. And, you know, we really shouldn't take that as real. He's trying to let you know what a backslidden person feels like. We cannot manipulate the text into meaning something that it doesn't mean because it's unsettling to our modern minds. Because we like the idea that things and stuff and money give life great grounding and meaning. And if you want to discount Ecclesiastes and Solomon, you can go right ahead, but listen to Jesus. The one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to invite to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, that's Jesus, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he, Jesus, said to this man, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. This guy comes to Jesus. 
And he's like, Jesus, tell my brother to give me half the stuff. And Jesus goes, no, I'm not going to. And by the way, life does not equal things. In a Western world that defines happiness by shopping trips, you know, we call it shopping therapy. Because somehow through spending money and having more things, we're happier. But you are going to run out of time before you run out of stuff. You are going to run out of time before you run out of money. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. If your life is grounded in the stuff that you buy, and if you go weeks on end without a shopping trip, without a new wardrobe, if you don't get a new seasonal wardrobe, and that somehow messes with your sense of self, and your self-confidence takes a hit, and you don't feel nice or beautiful or attractive, I'm not saying it's wrong to have clothes or nice clothes, and it's you know, it's somehow evil to have possessions or things. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying when we ground our life in the pursuit of things or the acquiring of things and our sense of happiness and purpose and destiny is disrupted when we no longer have a steady flow of things, that is idolatry. Culture makes sex an idol. The idea that any sort of restraint of passion and sexual gratification is considered inhumane. That's why we have hookup culture in amongst the you know millennial demographic of which I am a part. It's it's why the idea of casual sex and sexting in pornography is so huge in our society. It's the idea that anything I want, I should go out there and get. And if you or a church or a holy book tries to tell me otherwise. You are intolerant and you are denying me my humanity. It's an idol. Life is more than who you sleep with. Life is more than the act of sexual gratification. And life cannot be grounded in those things. Another idol that we at times have, especially in North American culture, is our political system. See, this is, this is crazy to me because both the political left and the political right in modern Western democracy, they base all of their ideas off of the fact that evil can be eradicated through social transformation and human ingenuity all at the hands of the government. But progress in this way is a myth. And the reason why politics could be one of the biggest idols in the modern Western Christian faith is because the modern political systems that we often serve and we uphold are simply plagiarized Christianity. Most of the political ideologies on across the political spectrum, they spring from this time in history called the Enlightenment when men were backing away from God to serve reason and God and the worship of God was no longer the grounding of society, but but human reason was, you know, the idea of the pursuit of the human mind and intellect and science and, and rational thought became the undergirding of society. Because, but here's the thing, though. When, when there is no God, you have to invent purpose and find other sources of meaning. Because when you deny God as the ultimate source of all life, we're just the products of random chance. And when we're the products of random chance, there's no longer a cosmic narrative for all things of which we are a part, and where there is no cosmic narrative of all things for which we are a part, then my life means absolutely nothing. And all morals and values 
that serve to undergird society lose their objectivity. And so modern political thought began to develop ideologies that were borrowed, plagiarized from Christianity, either through doing one of the two big things that Christianity promises and provides, either redeeming the world. So a political system brings about the idea of redemption. We're redeeming the world back to what it needs to be. Or we're bringing apocalypse to the world to bring about a new human existence, a new heaven, a new earth, because Jesus promised that when he went away that he was going to come back. And in John and Revelation promised that there was going to be this this millennial reign of Jesus, and that afterwards everything was going to be judged, and there would be this new heaven and this new earth. And so political ideologies across spectrums, from the far left to the far right and everyone in between, they bring about this idea of saving and redeeming the world or burning everything down to the ground to bring about a new way of existence. And this apocalyptic idea we see very much on the political left, and I'll get into that in a second, but, but I want you to listen to what John Gray has to say. Dr. John Gray is a philosopher, he's a British philosopher, and he's also an avowed atheist. He's not a believer, but here's what he says. He said, Jesus and his followers believed they lived in an end time when the evils of the world were about to pass away. Sickness and death, famine and hunger, war and oppression would all cease to exist after a world-shaking battle in which the forces of evil would utterly be destroyed. Such was the faith that inspired the first Christians. And then it continues, and this is, this is crazy to me. He says, the Enlightenment ideologies of the past centuries were very largely spilt theology. The history of the past century is not a tale of secular advance as the right and left like to think. The Bolshevik and Nazi seizures of power were faith-based upheavals just as much as the Ayatollah's theocratic insurrection in Iran. The idea of revolution as a transforming event in history is owed to religion. The idea that something has happened and because of this something, everything is now changed, that, that is a gospel idea. That is a gospel-centric narrative, albeit without the actual gospel. He continues, modern revolutionary movements are a continuation of religion by other means. And he goes, it's not just the revolutionaries who have held to secular versions of religious belief. So too have the liberal humanists who see progress as a slow incremental struggle. The belief that the world is about to end and believe in gradual progress may seem to be opposites. But they are not so different. Whether they stress piecemeal change or revolutionary transformation, theories of progress are not scientific hypotheses. They are myths which answer the human need for meaning. These are all replacement gods offering redemption stripped of the blood sacrifice of the only sinless lamb of God, offering a resurrection void of supernatural power a man-made world where the people of the dust are their own gods, saving and redeeming themselves through the power of the human spirit, which ironically cannot exist apart from the God who gives it. As such, all narratives arising from this world are as, as helpless as the foundation that undergirds it. We see this on the left and the right. We see right now the radical left in specifically the United States and, and somewhat in Canada as well, the idea of, of burning the economic systems to the ground, of, of, of burning the structures of power to the ground to remake this new and perfect utopian society. Essentially, what we're trying to do 
through these ideologies is bring about a new heaven and a new earth and a new way to be human without the king of the new heaven and the new earth. And the same could be said of the right as well. Incremental change, whereby people through prosperity and self-empowerment can rise above all of their ills and all of their problems without realizing the fact that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all else who can know it. And the only way to rise above anything is through Jesus. This idea of salvation by culture, Jesus pushed against so hard when his disciples said, let's, let's make you king. You're a great guy. Let's make you king. We're going to get on our horses. We're going to ride into the Roman Empire, and, and we're going to tell them, get out of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, no, my kingdom's not of this world. Now, now here's the deal. We've got listeners all over the world that work in all different forms of democracies, and, and thank God for democratic and free systems. These are good. I'm not decrying them. They're good. And we all should be good citizens. And we all should work in whatever system of government that we exist in for the good of the people, for the glory of Jesus. We should all be good citizens in whatever structure we find ourselves in, whether we're in a republic, whether we're in a parliamentary democracy, or some other form of government. We should all work within the society that we were a part of for the good of people, but to act as if this particular human system will be the actual one to bring change. To do that is to fall into the same trap of the disciples that bought into the politicized messianic hopes of their culture that believe that The Messiah was going to be a social economic ruler as opposed to a spiritual transformative Messiah. If we do this, we fall into the same trap as them. And to those of us that think the world rises and falls upon who is in power, my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. Politics can be a God. Entertainment can be a God too. Tony Renke said, we are hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Our hearts seek splendor as our eyes scan for greatness, and we cannot help it. John Piper said, the world aches to be odd. That ache was made for God. But the world seeks it mainly through movies. Entertainment can be an idol. If your whole world is disrupted, if you don't get a chance to unwind in front of the couch and watch a game, or if you found out how the Avengers movie ended and it totally messed you up, if you live and die on the basis of hit shows like Game of Thrones, if your whole emotional world rises and falls upon whatever happens to your favorite contestant or favorite character, and if time with God and time with your family is robbed of your love to be entertained and to consume hundreds and even thousands of hours, check your stats on your phone, thousands of hours of entertainment media, and you don't feel good about yourself or you don't feel like you've had a chance to relax until you've watched a movie, If you seek glory and a rush of emotional excitement through secular entertainment, 
that could be an idol. It could be something that is standing between you and God. It could be a habit or a practice that you are using to feed a, a hunger or a desire for happiness or goodness in your life that, that could be a replacement God. Other people, we, we may make idols not of entertainment or politics, but maybe our family. And you may be like, no, no, you can't go there, bro. Family first, family first, right? See, I love my family. It's my anniversary today. I love my wife. I love my son. But I don't worship my family. I worship Jesus. We can construct idols to the roles we play in other people's lives. What happens when you don't occupy that role anymore? As a youth pastor, I watched parents go through spiritual crises when their their little boy or little girl all of a sudden was now a grown-up and going to school and they're now a man or they're getting ready to get married. And and I've I've literally watched people leave church and fall apart and and their marriages implode because they don't know how to function as a married couple anymore because they worshiped their role as a parent. All of these roles in the life of other very special, very important people, they're temporary. I love being Judah's dad. But one day he's going to grow up and and move away from home. And I'm not going to be that guy anymore. I mean, I I pray that we continue to have a strong relationship, but he's going to be his own man. He's going to be independent from me. What if, God forbid, some tragedy falls, befalls my family and, and they pass away in an accident or they're taken with disease? If my whole life rises and falls upon the role I play in other people's lives, what will happen when those other people go away? I have to have something more. Entertainment, politics, social media, things, stuff. These are not God's. I'm not saying they're bad in and of themselves. I'm not saying they're, they're horrible in and of themselves. I'm saying when we organize our existence around other things other than Jesus, things cease to become things and they become gods. So much of our life is predicated on trashy propositions. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been so convicted in the reading and, and literature survey I've done in preparation for this podcast. The, the wild syncretism of my own life is, it's, it makes me cringe. I have been so quick in, in my life, even as a leader, as a pastor, to assign value and meaning and power and love to things that are essentially worthless. It's not that these things don't bring some sort of temporary emotional high. They do. I mean, when you buy something new and you bring it home and you plug it in and it lights up and it's louder and you're like, oh, this is so cool. It's not a matter of feeling at all because things do bring you feeling. You know, if your political party wins, it does give you a like, oh, we conquered. It's not a matter of feeling. It's that the worth of this stuff is entirely assigned and wholly and utterly powerless to ground life and give it any solvent purpose and meaning other than the hedonistic impulse it feeds for a brief few moments before it dissipates into nothing. I mean, I, so much of my worldview has been shaped by a culture whose 
Values are nothing more than a copy-and-paste version of Christianity, albeit stripped of the power, the holiness, the eternality of the God of Christianity. Progress is a myth. I said it. (laughs) Humanism in all its forms is not making the world any better. Apart from the existence of a holy supreme God, all values have no other grounding in anything other than themselves. History cements itself over and over again that humanity does not progress itself, but it's trapped in cycles of, air quotes here, advancement, only to have our advancement overthrown by whatever the Huns are and return to the world of dumping our latrines in the street. We do not incrementally progress. We are stuck in cycles of regression. Look at, look at this example from history. Slavery was one of the greatest human evils perpetuated uh, in, in the post-Enlightenment world. And then slavery was abolished and it was struck down. But now human trafficking has arisen. It's another name, but it's the same old human practice of treating other humans as things. And it's a tremendous and horrible evil. History reveals not the progress of man, but the depravity and the cruelty of man. Any progress in the world that can be observed is the world of God somehow breaking through the noise and lust we creatures of the dirt are to find what spark of spiritual desire, not yet snuffed out by the flesh, lays in our souls. If there is progress in the world, if we can observe any advancement in our world, It is the unending graciousness of God in his reaching love towards us. If we are to be truly Christians, if we are to be apostolic, it's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus and the turning away of all of the other idols. It's Jesus or nothing. And nothing in the worst darkest, most depressing kind of way. One of the most disturbing things to me is God led me on this crazy journey of prayer and scripture reading and fasting and study is to, is to, is to understand this. To be, to be a believer is to first embrace an entirely dystopian view of life. And that goes against everything our Western culture tells us is true. We're told, you know, work hard, bootstrap your life. And all of a sudden, you know, la-di-da, you're going to have two and a half kids, a white picket fence and a dog. And life is going to have meaning because you're part of a culture that does good things. And then you start digging around and you figure out that there's a whole lot of stuff in our culture that is reflective of the corruption and sinfulness of the human heart that is not unlike the corruption and sinfulness in the human hearts of all sorts of other societies all around the world of history, past and also present. And to be a believer is to understand and embrace the meaninglessness of everything and the utter fallacy in progressing the human race through human means and efforts. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities is to understand the truth in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing that is of meaning in the earth. Everything under the sun is vanity. And the only thing that is not vanity 
is what is beyond the sun, what is beyond the earth, and what is connected to God. See, our modern problem is we want to find meaning in everything. And it doesn't work that way. We want everything in life to be grounded and connected to its own purpose. And it doesn't work that way. I, I guess here's, here's, here's my point. To those, to those of us that are listening that are part of the Western world, we have added to our life the narratives of our culture and we have made our cultural stories as equally as true as our faith in Jesus. And we have said they all come from Jesus without even investigating if that's really true or not. We have syncretized our faith in our cultural views so that they are one and the same theology. We've stamped the name in favor of God on our political views, our views of government, our views of culture, our economic views. I, I see this all the time in Canada. Before, you know, um, before any of my American friends try to reach through the headphones, but I see this all the time here in Canada. People want to elevate our view of government and our social policy as somehow being more righteous and just when it's just a system and it's made by humans. And because it's made by humans that are just as fallible as the ones leading all of the other systems, we can debate over which one may be slightly better than the other, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't have Jesus in it, it's doomed to fail. And I think the worst part, maybe this is just for me, is I've put on God what are merely the results of living in an affluent culture. And the problem with this prosperity-based, syncretized view is that the vast majority of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to be honest, those who are doing far more in the kingdom of God than I am, somehow they're less blessed if our cultural views are to be taken seriously. Now, I'm not saying personal freedom is the same as totalitarian regimes. Do not, do not straw man what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that there is not biblical elements to our culture or that God does not, in fact, bless with material things. All of that stuff is true. I'm speaking about the underlying assumptions of our cultural worldview that we believe somewhere in our hearts that our secular cultural system will bring about a better life and a better world without Jesus that somehow we are more favored because of the cultural, political, and social systems that are ruling our present day. But I, I have a strong suspicion. Now, I'm only speaking for myself here, that at the great marriage supper of the Lamb, that Adam Michael Shaw is going to be sitting at the little kid's table bedazzling my paper Burger King crown with a hot glue gun while the lion's share of the reward will be received by those who never lived in a 1900 square foot house in a really nice city in a very wealthy nation where they served God as vagabonds and pilgrims in a culture that despised them and they paid tremendous prices in order that they may follow Jesus, build his church, and serve his kingdom. And, and I, I'm sorry to, to, to be so blunt, but 
I'm at times worried that there is an arrogance amongst those of us that are part of this extremely affluent North American church that somehow because we have more money, that somehow we know more about the kingdom of God. I, I, don't, I don't know. Please, I, I, don't, I don't mean to come across as, as rude or arrogant. But the stuff and the material possessions and the money that we have, those aren't value metrics in the kingdom of God. And if we make them value metrics for the kingdom of God, then maybe that's an idol. I guess what I'm trying to say is what anchors your life? Where do you find joy? Where do you find purpose? What makes you feel connected to another group of people? Is it your ethnicity? Is it, is it your citizenry? Is it the country that you're born in? And all of those things, they're part of who you are, but that can't be the ultimate thing. If you're anchoring your life in anything else other than Jesus, stop. If your emotions rise and fall over whether you buy new stuff, stop. If, if your whole world goes you know, crazy because somebody didn't like your selfie, stop that, that's crazy. If you live and die over talk radio and your whole emotional world is over what the right is doing or what the left is doing or what the middle is doing or you know whether or not your guy or your girl or your party gets in power, stop that. In the great scheme of eternity, it's not going to matter. We should not anchor our life and our existence and our happiness in anything else that does not come from Jesus. And I'm not saying this to be harsh or to be rude or to be judgmental, but to echo the cry of the scripture that idolatry is futile. Because it only hurts you. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not act like the other nations who try to read their future in the stars. Do not be afraid of their predictions, even though the other nations are terrified by them. Their ways are futile and foolish. They cut down a tree and a craftsman carves an idol. They decorate it with gold and silver and then fasten it securely with hammer and nails so it won't fall over. Their gods are like helpless scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They need to be carried because they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of such gods, for they can neither harm you nor do you any good. Scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's what Jeremiah said the other gods of the culture are. And over the past number of years, I've watched people go through some of the worst things that people can go through. I've been in pastoral ministry now for about 14 uh, years or so, and I've watched all kinds of people walk through some of the absolute worst stuff that can happen to a human being. And in my own family, we have had our fair share of stress. Life can be cruel. It can be gut-wrenching. It can be painful. And we seek, as human beings, we seek order. We crave order in everything. But often in life, there is more chaos than there is order. And there are moments when the great philosophical and cosmic questions 
that are baffling the smartest human beings on the planet, all of a sudden there are, there are times in life when those great philosophical, cosmic, or existential questions all of a sudden become your life and your questions. Like what happens when someone dies becomes what will happen to me when I die of this illness? How does someone grapple with terminal illness all of a sudden becomes how will I grapple with my terminal illness? What is life like after one loses a child or a spouse or a parent becomes what is my life now that I have lost my spouse, child, or parent? You see what I mean? In those moments when real life happens and when despair and pressure and anger and, and grief all collide in your broken heart, your idols, in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 115, they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they're not going to hear. They have hands, but they, they can't touch you. They have feet, but they're not going to be able to walk to you. They can't even mutter noises through their throat. Hear me, everything else in life is a phantom. All other idols that you could have are not real gods. They're phantoms. And when crisis and when pain and when life happens to you, you will find quickly when you anchor your world and you anchor your existence and you worship things and stuff and possessions and social media presence, it dissolves. And your idols will not be able to carry you because your idols are objects of your own hands and nothing you make is greater than you. That's what Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 2.18. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof have graven it, the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein. He's like, how is it that the stuff that people make with their own hands, that the maker trusts in his own creation to hold him and sustain him? So why in the world would we construct scarecrows of social media advancement trust in political parties, nationalism or careers, even family or a stage of life, and then turn those things into little scarecrows and, and put them in our little cucumber patches under the misguided notion that they somehow protect us from the chaos of life. See, the call of Scripture to forsake idols and the call of the early church to new believers to forsake idols, the same call that extends to all of us today, is not done out of intolerance or a desire to control. It's from a very real understanding that all other gods are phantoms, and as such, they are wholly and entirely incapable of of sustaining and caring your life. Maybe the best thing for you to do after you listen to this podcast is to take some time and to pray and seek God and ask for his Holy Spirit to identify anchors in your life that aren't him. And you need to unplug your heart from those anchors. I'm not saying if there are people or relationships that you got to, you know, get rid of those people or those relationships. And I'm not saying that if it's your job that all of a sudden you've got to quit your job, but I'm saying that you've got to untether your heart 
from the notion that these things can sustain your soul. Maybe what you got to do is you got to stop listening to so many political podcasts. Maybe you need to take a break from talk radio. Maybe you need to take a break from Netflix and you need to rediscover the joy of boredom and how God can actually speak to our hearts and minds more often when our TVs are off and our phones are on silent and they're stuck in a drawer and we're not surfing the web randomly. That in the silence and in the boredom of the mundane things of life is where God can break in and God can speak. Because again, this call to forsake idols is not done out of intolerance. It's not done out of this arrogant and divisive spirit that wants to be at odds with the culture. It's simply stating a real fact that Jesus is God and everyone else and everything else is not. Only Jesus can bring peace. Only Jesus can bring protection. Only Jesus can ground our life in purpose and cause us to be connected to other people. That's why the Apostle Paul said, In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in Him. And if we have Jesus, that's that's all we really need. And every, every missing piece, every missing part in our soul can be fulfilled with Jesus. This is why the only anchor of our souls, the only God of our life, has to be Him. Look, I understand this is a bit of a different podcast, but we got to poke and prod at some of the ideas that we use to anchor and sustain our heart and sustain our faith. We've got to figure out what is the solid rock and what is the sinking sand. And thus far, what I have discovered is Jesus is the only stable thing in the universe. And the only one that I should be worshiping is Him. I want to say thank you for listening. We got one more Big Idea podcast. I'm really excited about it. But after that, we're going to be entering into a season of interviews. We're going to be interviewing some incredible preachers. And we're going to be talking about the art of preaching. I'm going to be interviewing some of the most amazing and incredible spirit-filled preachers in the apostolic world. And we're going to figure out what makes apostolic preaching so different from all other forms of communication. My first interview is scheduled for next week, though the podcast won't be released for a while, but I'm so pumped. I can't wait to tell you about it. I'm going to be interviewing the General Secretary of the United Pentecostal Church International, Brother Scott Graham. We're going to talk about what makes apostolic preaching so unique. It's going to be an absolutely amazing podcast. Also, in this season of preaching, we're going to be interviewing Victor Jackson, Myron Weidman Jr., Brother Josh Carson, and my dad. I'm so excited. I can't wait to dive into the topic of telling people about Jesus and what makes a spirit-focused, Jesus-centered approach to preaching different from all other forms of religious and spiritual communication out there in the world. I can't wait for you to listen to it. It's going to be absolutely amazing. If this podcast has helped you at all, or if you think it's going to help someone you know, please share it. Please hit subscribe. Thank you so much for your time today. I don't take it for granted. God bless. You have a great day.